in Hi. the <laughs> Oh, let's Hi. get our let's get our book pluck out of the way. Well, hello. It's coming out at the start of October. Yeah, it's it not is. too far away. You or can pre order in September. September the twenty eighth. End of September, start of October. You can pre order from your favourite bookstore and uh yeah, it's. I think it's pretty funny. Funny, so. Well, um, shockingly, it is quite a good read, um, and no one's more surprised than I am. <laughs> Full credit for that goes to Miranda. Murphy. I know that's right, and uh, and Gwen Blake. Anyway, we, unfortunately, we've had to cancel our book tour for obvious reasons. Ah! But we will. We're working on trying to do some kind of online things. We Hopefully, are. you can join us for that. Yeah, so. and we'll be sort of hanging around the place, and we will tour the second that we can. Um, but in the meantime. The book can keep you company. There's exactly. lots of stuff in there. Exactly. There's some dumb stuff in there. There's now, some... <laughs> Shall we talk more about it? No. Okay. <laughs> no. She's already crossing Ob- things obligatory, off the list. Obligatory book plug done. <laughs> there you go, people at Penguin. I have fulfilled my contractual oh obligations. Oh, my God, you're a nightmare. Now, in the least surprising development ever, guess what I've been doing? Watching telly. Hello. Watching reams of sports documentaries. I just, what <laughs> even? You are the funniest. What is that? Is it like fencing? You've got a fencing binge now? SBS has this, um, what they call a shelf, which is when they group a series of Mm. theme-related things together and it's called um, Heroes and Villains of Sport. And so it is this just superb collection of documentaries. Oh, so they've just curated it, basically. Yeah, exactly. So I've watched two so far. One is uh, Lance. About, oh. Have you watched that? No. Oh, man. So uh, We're talking Armstrong, I'm yeah. assuming. Lance Armstrong. Not, uh, you know, pole vaulting, <laughs> a beginner's guide. <laughs> what is it, Lance? No, it's, oh, jousting. No, it's actually about Lance from NSYNC. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, no, Lance Armstrong. And it's he's fully cooperated, so it's sort of him. Why? Well, that is the fascinating question, and it's one of those classic things where the person who's cooperating perceives himself one way, but their actual personality, when you good up, get a These good up close favorite. look at it. Oh, you'll love it. So there's there's a lot of incidental scenes which. Like there's a scene where Lance Armstrong's in a car and he refuses to put his seatbelt on and the person mm-hmm. in the back goes, hey, Lance, put your seatbelt on. And he's like, oh, you know, why? Well, I don't I don't want to. I don't have to. Oh. And it's like that kind of exceptionalism, like that the rule, the regular rules Maniac. don't apply to me. Yeah. Right. It's quite interesting. But then it goes into his childhood. His mother's in it. She had him when she was really young, like, you know, 16 or 17, right. super young. Huh. And then she, she ended up with this dude who was Lance's stepdad who obviously drove him extraordinarily hard. Um, so it puts a bit of context around, you know, perhaps why is his personality this win at all costs kind okay. of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that was fascinating. But then my favourite was there's one called Rodman about oh. Dennis Rodman. It's narrated by Jamie Foxx. Wow. Yeah. It's really very the, – the way it's done is very original, um, like Rodman himself, and it's – Current day Dennis Rodman sitting in a kind of empty theatre talking and then it's obviously, you know, archive and stuff and it's people who are friends with Rodman or, you know, were involved in the Chicago Bulls with him talking about him. Is Madonna in it? Uh, Not interviewed but they do go into the Madonna kind of era. Um, Look, I've got a massive soft spot for Rodman because I I like... We so like in many ways. (laughs) I like his um, – he's one of those people who never really quite fit in and then he really struggled with that and then at a certain point he was able to go, I don't fit in and I'm going to embrace that and yeah. I'm going to be myself yeah. and I'm going to just lean into the fact that I don't fit yeah. in. Um, and that's kind of why he and Madonna, you know, hit it off to a degree. 
but then he had such an incredibly troubled childhood, you know, extreme bullying, um, family issues, uh, that it's kind of like as they explore his life, it's clear that the issues from when he was a child have been incredibly difficult to overcome mm. and that he's still quite troubled and, and hasn't really been able to shed that over the course of his life. And so it's quite... Um, the Rodman story, I think, is probably a tragedy overall, but there's moments of great sort of joy and levity in the doco. Anyway, it was it was fascinating and it just added to my view that he's a fascinating character. I actually, my theory of Rodman is that he's actually extremely intelligent. Mm. I think he's highly, highly intelligent, but that he's moved in a world where that intelligence probably didn't have an outlet in his younger years. Right. Um, and... You know, sometimes if people aren't given the tools um, to develop their kind of strengths and talents, then it can become they can become frustrated or it's difficult. It can break difficult. out into different things. Yeah, yeah. that's how he, he kind of strikes me. Oh wow! Um, so it's it's absolutely fantastic. So did I you watch this it. with your stack of Phil Jackson books like <laughs> arranged around you on the I sofa? <laughs> I had my life size Phil Jackson cut out on one side and my life size Michael Jordan on the other. Um, but the reason that I slipped into the SBS heroes versus villains was because I had um, put a post on social media about Luke Longley on Australian oh, story. Oh my God. Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Did you like it? I absolutely loved it. There's yeah. heaps of stuff that I didn't know. I mean, because I watched Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls doco, just like you did, although I, 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 <laughs> I slightly less sports, enthusiasm. There's slightly fewer <laughs> works by Phil Jackson, star coach, as a result. <laughs> In my brain, you actually also bought a Native American amulet. <laughs> I know, like, you claimed this. I know. And I didn't. But is that true? No. Oh, not true. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't go that far down. I do watch a lot of Larry Bird best of videos <laughs> yes, on YouTube. But. Hush now. Anyway, so... <laughs> So when I saw that um, Australian Story had gone to Luke Longley and made a double header episode with him because he wasn't really in Last Dance, no, and so there's like all these layers there of what it's like to be left out of the definitive story of this team, and in some ways that's the entry point for me for that doco that um, Oz Story made, just like how does this guy react to – and he said he had to change his phone number because all these people oh. were ringing him when last, da last Dance was so popular, just saying, oh, dude, you know, why aren't you in it? When, are they going to get to you? And he was even saying that he was watching it thinking maybe I'll be in this one, maybe yeah. I'll be in this one. <laughs> and then watch, they had a sequence of him watching, I think, with one of his kids where he's yeah. like, there's me in the background, <laughs> um, which, I mean, look, it was – Fascinating because um, I probably, probably should have background a bit. Luke Longley was the centre for the Chicago Bulls in their sort of absolutely epic era in the 90s with Rodman and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and all of that crew. And then in The Last Dance, he really is barely mentioned at all. So when Australian Story came out um, and I saw the promo, of course, in the promo, they've got Jackson, Jordan, Pippen. They got everybody. Speaker. Everybody is in it except Rodman. Except for Rodman, who was off on a bender celebrating his birthday yeah, somewhere, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I, when I saw the promo, like, I actually squealed, like, they've got everybody. Oh my God. Anyway, I texted Caitlin Shea, who's the EP of Australian Story, and just said, oh my God, well done. But the thing that was great was that. The, the guys who were very prominent in the doco, like, you know, Jordan, who I think was involved in the production of it, said, yeah, it was an oversight. Like, he was a really important key member of the team that we would have, you know, if I was rebuilding that team, I would 100% want Luke Longley in yeah. there. And it was wrong that we kind of, you know, 
didn't incorporate. Because he lives in Western Australia, so he's a long way away from where That's the right. He's very remote. So, yeah. He's in a remote part of WA. I guess also it's hard because, my God, the big personalities in that team were so big. Yeah. I mean, so I suppose you can't inc- include everything in a, in a documentary. And so when you've got your epic figures like Rodman and Jordan and these people that their stories are so, Pip and their stories are so fascinating. I suppose you're trying to choose between, well, yeah. we can't incorporate everything. How do we make this work? Um, but actually, so shame. the way that it's panned out actually is magic because you not only get Last Dance, which is this, you know, it's an absolute showcase of just yeah, dementedly sort of intricate personalities and huge personalities, but then... If you watch it in concert with the two-parter from Australian Story, you get something quite uh, magical, which is Luke Longley's commentary on all of that. Mm. And the thing that struck me, I mean, I was watching it with my son and I was thinking, I mean, and my daughters, but I was particularly thinking oh, he's such a great male model, like a oh, role model. Oh, he was superb. He's, like he's, he's absolutely um, straightforward and honest in describing his own feelings, particularly at times of his career where he felt he was failing or he wasn't Mm. going anywhere, where he wasn't sure about basketball, even his um, weird relationship with Michael Jordan, which he said at one point, there's this great line where he says, well, look, Michael, MJ is just a complete killer, but you you don't need 12 killers on a team. Yeah, so So true. So he's talking about um, what was an obviously um, really quite intricate use of his emotional intelligence to be a part of that team. And he always, um, in interview, talks about his team members first. Like he's definitely a team player type person. 100%. And Mm. so therefore exactly the kind of person you want on a team. There's a great sequence I loved where he had the Chicago Bulls Russian dolls and he picked them all apart, then showed like what was the politics of the team, who was allied with who, and that was really great. Um, Yeah, he also – he was one of those people with a lot of humility who – even though Jordan is, you know, such a complex kind of grating character in Mm. some ways that Longley was saying, I just appreciate that – Michael's brilliance, you know, carried me in that team kind of thing. And that that sense of, you know, yes, Michael's hard work, but he really was also truly brilliant. And that sort of acknowledgement of that too. Like it was just so – because I think it would be quite easy to feel a lot of resentment towards Jordan in a lot of ways. Oh, for sure. But he didn't indulge in that emotion one one bit, which is very healthy. But he was also really clear-eyed about it in accepting that this guy was never going to be his friend. No, And that was, I thought, really um, evolved of him. Because I think sometimes, particularly when you work with difficult people, it's one of the hardest things is reconciling how you have a functional relationship with someone you can't stand Mm. or – even though you admire their abilities in some respects, it's a really hard thing to do. And it's hard. To, I mean, it's, it is the reason why workplaces have issues, right? Yeah. Because people don't know how to work together productively, you know, with someone they, they don't like or they don't get along with. But I just found the whole thing, all of his insights, just really useful. Um, he had, and- a, he, he had an, a, kind, a kind of emotional intelligence that, I mean, you know, I obviously only know Jordan from how he talks on that doco. But... Luke Longley had a way of seeing things from other people's perspective mm. that Jordan doesn't display. <laughs> like Jordan, whenever he talks about the teams, always going on about, um, 
when people talk about his almost like bullying kind of behaviour, yeah. he's like, well, that's what it takes to win. And he's never yeah. been able to, in any of the grabs I've seen, acknowledge that maybe there was a different way or that there were some different dynamics at play. And even in the way that he talks about teammates, they're all through the prism of himself. So yeah. when he was talking, I mean, he was sort of saying the odd nice thing about Luke Longley, but also saying, well, here's how I handled Luke and here's yes, how I got yeah. the best out of Luke by Super you know, constantly needling him or whatever. So it was just it was just a really great comparison of yeah. a pair of terrific sports people and, and their totally different approach to and, life. And um, God knows, you know, I don't like to go on about the genius of Phil Jackson, but... but I suspect that you're about to. <laughs> the thing with Jackson, and it's the exact yes. opposite to Jordan, is um, there were some great bits where Jackson says, you know, when I brought Luke Longley into the team, and they had a quite like-minded view about teams and how a good team functions yeah. and so forth, he, because Longley's just gigantically mm. tall... Um, he said, but also married to Anna Gare, which I didn't know, who's like an unusually tiny. <laughs> small person. So Jackson, I goes, love Anna Gare, by the way. I was <laughs> thrilled to find they were married. She's so good. Um, Jackson goes uh, often with a very tall player. They feel like they're insecure. Am I really that good a player, or am I only here because I'm super tall? Oh right. Okay. And so that understanding the that that's an insecure height quota argument. <laughs> yeah, that un- understanding of. Luke's going to have this insecurity about that and so I have to huh. um, address him and, and work with him on that level. And, and, you know, it reminded me that Jackson with all of them, like the thing in The Last Dance where he says to Rodman, every tribe has a member that walks backwards and you're a guy who walks backwards. And that meeting of people and identifying this is what this person needs me to fulfil in their psyche and that's how I'm going to deal with them. And it's the exact opposite to Jordan who was like, Everything's a nail and I am a hammer. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. hammer everybody. Um, anyway, it was just, it was great. It was beautifully shot and Longley was just an absolutely adorable um, person. And, you know, nothing probably speaks higher of you than when your ex-wife sits there oh. and goes, he is a great man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty great too. Yeah, it was lovely. Anyway, That's- absolutely loved it. And then my love of the sporting docos has bled into oh God, my drama, next? Ted Lasso. Have you watched oh, that? Oh, yeah, I watched the first series a while back and I haven't watched the new series. Um, very funny. Yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it. It's kind of uh, just a f- light, feel-good sort of thing. Ted Lasso's the coach. She's an American who's gone to the UK to coach a soccer team. Uh, and so it's a little bit cultural clash between this sort of super optimistic, you know, Texan uh, guy and the, you know, British soccer players. Um, But it's just, it's light, it's easy. I love all the characters. Um, It's good. I really enjoyed watching it. I I remember why I felt a bit uneasy about it is because we're watching with the kids and then... Um, there's just a bit oh, too a much lot of swearing. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. we started watching it. And I'm like, oh, boop, yeah. boop. And my, then eventually just went, oh, my God, I think we're just going to have to leave the kids out of future. Yeah, my yeah. Uh, seven-year-old loves <laughs> getting into bed with me when he knows I'm watching it and the whole reason is for the swearing oh, of for Roy sure. Kent. It yeah, really pays. Yeah. that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. Anyway, it's, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I recommend it. <laughs> hey, um, so speaking of um, extreme sports, I'm about to um, – attempt a, a, an ambitious and um, possibly unwieldy uh, segue here. Um, <laughs> Daring to Fly. Ah, I know yes. that that's out and I know what? that this is out because I've read half of it and we are talking to the author in a, well, a technically ambitious live facebook This is, this is Lisa shortly. Miller's memoir, Daring to Fly. What does this have to do with extreme sports? <laughs> fly 
flying. It's about a fear of flying, you <laughs> jerk. I mean, like, I'm, it was, it's incredibly gracious that, like, extreme sports, flying, <laughs> afraid of flying. Lisa Miller, new book. So, um, okay, well, you try it then. You, you do it. You okay, do let it. Let me think. Um, how can I? How can I work extreme sports into and Lisa Rodman? Speaking of people who are tall, Lisa Rodman? Think of, like, oh, speaking of people who are tall and unique, Lisa Miller has a memoir. <laughs> um, Daring to fly. Okay, so it's basically um, the story of Lisa uh, growing up in regional Queensland in a place called Kilkeven, which is uh, outside of Gympie, maybe three hours or so from Brisbane. Yeah. Her father, a long way from Gympie is all you need to know. Not too far from Gympie. Right. Well, near close-ish, Gympie, yeah. Not but, near Brisbane. But country um, close or close, close? Uh, like a three-hour drive. Yeah, yeah, right. So um, you wouldn't not pop up the shops in no, Gympie. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, proper country. So her father, Clary, was um, the f- Federal National Party member for the seat where they lived. And she talks – I find her childhood absolutely fascinating because it's very – I mean, probably be not dissimilar to yours in some ways in sort of, you know – A lot more remote. A lot more remote. A lot more small planes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so the family had a small plane to get places and so that was her first her first um, exposure to flying, which she loved as a kid. Um, but then when she – she then grew up to become a journalist. She was sort of fascinated with journalism and there's actually – Lisa has sent me this great audio clip that one of her sisters kept on a cassette of her interviewing their dad when she's about eight. And at the end she goes, okay, then, Clary, we're out of time now. (laughs) It's just classic. (laughs) She gave him the sales wind-up at eight. (laughs) She gave him the sales wind-up at age eight. Anyway, she then she goes on to become a journalist and then when she was um, the far north Queensland reporter for ABC News, she had to get a flight somewhere and the plane had a massive, uh, you know, issue and they had an emergency landing that was completely Even a small terrifying. Issue is not great in a small plane. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, and that caused her to then have a big fear of flying, which huh. became sort of almost like it was going to derail her journalism career because you've got to be able to jump on planes and fly places. Anyway, she did the Qantas fear of flying yeah. course that existed at the time and sort of managed to get through it. And then the back part of the memoir, or the second half, is about um, – becoming a foreign correspondent and all of the big stories and things that she's covered and then just the cumulative weight of covering lots and lots of deeply traumatic events mm. and the sacrifices you make when you are living and working overseas. Yeah. So, for example, both of her parents died when she was overseas yeah. on assignment um, and then just the re-entry into Australia and after, you know, 10 years of this kind of adventure and then settling into normal life and finding a kind of rhythm of, you know, just living a more regular kind of life. Um, Lisa is a very warm, friendly Mm. kind of person and I feel like the book really has that kind of Mm. tone to it. Um, So, yeah, it's a great great read. I'm very proud of her. um, She is the most – she's prodigiously talented as a correspondent. Like I – you know, she's she's been to – radically different parts of the world. She's done some like, oh, my God, some absolutely stories where I look at it and think, how did you not go crazy with grief and trauma, like covering that event? Um, mm. Sandy Hook and Oh, that. God, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, but then also, you know, I mean, I watched her work a little bit when she was running the um, London Bureau when I was there for the Royal Wedding. I went to the oh, Royal yeah. Wedding, remember that? Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, I just, like, watched her work and it's a really rare journalist who can, like, bust out really competent stories quickly and, like, impart an emotion 
to those like really hard events, but then also manage an office as well. Oh, and, like, yeah. She's just um, she's got a lot of emotional intelligence. She um, look, you know, full, <laughs> full disclaimer, she's my best friend. So you know, oh, she's your best friend. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to because, break the news. Oh, yeah, wow. Oh, wow. Okay, well, there's a few childhood just buddies a, that yeah, will have conflict, a bit of a com- moment. Conflict you know. of interest there. Um, no, having worked closely with Lisa, you know, we're just talking before about <laughs> workplaces and like the basketball team and how yeah. you have to adapt yeah, yeah. to working with people who are horror heads. I mean, I had to do that with Lisa, obviously. Um, <laughs> no, joking. Lisa is the exact opposite of that. Like as a work colleague, I, I think it's actually quite rare over your life that you get people that you work with that you have absolute respect for their ability yeah. at their job and you think they're brilliant and you absolutely love them as a human being. It's Sometimes you work with people that you acknowledge their brilliance but you don't like them that much. Sometimes you have people that you absolutely love but you think they're kind of average. But to have both of those things together is not that common. Um, and she's one of those people that I've worked with that is in that category. Like her capacity for work and her ability to just get stuff done and to be a reliable, safe pair of hands and also to deliver complete quality in everything she does is almost, you know, unparalleled. Like, And she's a very well-liked colleague because she's a generous colleague as well. So yeah, you can she, see what she's like when you watch her on TV in the morning. Oh, totally, like, yeah. Really, she's she a very she's a very generous, easy kind of person to work with who just gets stuff done. And I think sometimes those people are not appreciated as much as they should be because they're not a squeaky wheel. They don't cause trouble. That's yeah. right. And once you get used to working with someone like that, it's kind of expected that oh, they're, that's, you know, they're always easy and so, you know, it becomes kind of taken for granted. But she is actually she's also superb. heaps better at technology than I am, as you she said. Sensitively pointed out in a series of messages recently <laughs> when we were trying to work out how to do this sort of Facebook kind of live discussion sort of thing. I, of course, sweated and tears of actual blood when trying to work this out last year when we were doing it. And then you were very quick to inform me that Lisa had figured it out in seconds. In seven so, minutes. Yeah. It was, yeah, we were fumbling around and then Lisa went, oh, let me just have a look at this website yeah, in seven shut seconds. Up. Yeah. Seven minutes later, she said, that's me, why she's Gee, your just best click friend. on this, click on this link and you can join me. So nice. Her hair's so lovely. She's just, she's got like, I just, yeah, yeah she's, she's just brilliant. She never interrupts shut me. Up. She doesn't um, wind me up. I have read a memoir recently that is um, by someone that I don't know at all. Yeah. Apart from the fact that I've listened to them a little bit um, on a podcast, one of my like, it's a really good history library nerd podcast called um, Archive Fever. Yeah. And it features um, one of my favourite historians, Claire Wright. Oh yeah. We've spoken many times. The Eureka book. Yeah, yeah. And her colleague Eve Rees. Now Eve has written a memoir called and. It, if your name's Eve, All About Eve is the name of the, I mean, brilliant, right? Spelled Y V E S. Anyway, it is a memoir. Like, Eve is a historian and, you know, the host of Archive Fever, um, very distinguished historian. But they're also a person who, um, a few, I don't know exactly how many years ago, transitioned, it's not really the right word re-identified as non-binary, having grown up as a girl and then woman. Right. And it's an absolutely, like, it's a beautifully written book. It's gentle. It's reflective. It tells the story of what happens when you, as an adult, think, why do I, why have I always felt uncomfortable? This sort of exploding series of revelations, one of which actually happened on air, live on air, on radio, talking um, about, well, who am I and 
I don't think that I actually really match the image that people have of me or even this sort of body that I've occupied since birth. And I'm tearing up a little bit, actually. It's just a... I think, honestly, with this issue of kind of identity and gender, so much bullshit is spoken by people who have no idea what they're talking about, right? Like, it is one of the most politicised and kind of peopled with extremist lunacy kind of areas of discussion. And I think that sometimes people would do better to just shut up and listen or, in this case, read Mm. the story of, you know, what this is like. And... um, it's just, it's a really, really fascinating book. And it, it kind of covers everything from, you know, um, well, how do you talk to your family and friends about the fact that you're going to change your name and you're going to change your pronouns? But it's also about this sort of, this sort of endless admin of changing your pronouns and um, how awkward people find it, how they trip up. And even just like, you know, in Australia, you can actually have a passport that's that says that you're non-binary, like you're not um, male or female. But then if you are, a let's say, historic, history academic and you're travelling around to conferences, you might fly into a country that doesn't recognise, like, non-binary people and all of a sudden you're in the middle of this sort of security situation where they're like, oh, my God, who are you and, you know, what are you doing here? So, anyway, it's just – it's a really illuminating, like, fascinating read – beautifully written, but also just gently illuminating in a way that I found really, really useful. It reminds me um, of a book that I have just finished reading called No Time Like the Future, which is Michael J. Fox's memoir, because it's that kind of discussion where you're getting an insight into a person's experience that they're able to explain really clearly that if you haven't lived it yourself, you have no idea about. And of Mm. course, Michael J. Fox, it's having Parkinson's disease and being diagnosed from age 29 with this, you know, lifelong condition. And He's written a number of books. This one's really interesting because he had a bad run of – he had to have a a back operation because there was a tumour on his spine. This was a couple of years ago. And then the doctors said to him, um, you have to be super, super careful to not fall over after you've had this surgery. Um, And obviously that's a really hard thing to ask Mm. someone with Parkinson's. And he was having this morning where he was feeling pretty good. His daughter was staying at the place with him. And she said, are you sure you don't want me to stay? And he was like, it's fine, it's fine, I'm fine. And then he was just a bit too enthusiastic going out to the kitchen to make himself a cup of coffee, fell over. And then he's lying on the ground and he can tell that he's badly, badly broken an arm and just hating himself thinking, Mm. why, why, why have I done this? I've brought this on myself and it's the one thing they told me. And and then it sort of starts this process of – because he's always been quite an optimistic guy and feeling like, you know, um, if life hands you lemons, make lemonade. And mm. then he's like, yeah, well, I'm just, I'm out of the lemonade business now, I'm done. <laughs> and so it's this kind of dealing with how do you deal when you just don't feel anymore like you want to try to find the bright side in things and to think positively. So I thought it was a superb memoir because there's so much nonsense gets written about optimism and the power of optimism mm. and all of the rest of it. He still is optimistic and he, and he, he talks about, um, you know, for him, what's got him through is gratitude and trying to be in the moment and to be grateful for what you've got. And he's had this mm. sort of view that no matter how much Parkinson's or illness takes up out of your life, it can't take 100%. Like there's mm. still some things in your life that aren't the illness. You know, there's mm. your friends or there's a TV show you like or whatever. And so he's tried so hard to focus on this kind of stuff. But he makes the point that there are times where that is bloody difficult 
to do. Um, there's this great, I mean, so much of it is just so deeply affecting, but he's also, um, it's funny too. There's this bit where his family every year, they have the a kind of Christmas or, you know, New Year's sort of holiday in um, some island in the Caribbean where all the, you know, hotshot celebrities go. And he's been not very well and he can't walk on sand. It's too difficult. Um, and so it's New Year's Eve and he's sitting in a bar that's overlooking the beach, mm. but all of his family's actually down on the beach and then the fireworks are happening. And he's sitting at the bar with Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones. <laughs> typical <laughs> typical New Year's Eve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, he's just he says the holiday, it's been really hard for him. He just can't do anything. He's in constant pain all the time. He's trying to not say anything about it to be a downer on everyone. Anyway, he says the midnight fireworks go off and in the reflected fire firework light, he looks over at Keith Richards and he thinks to himself, oh, God, Keith Richards looks better than I feel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just I love Michael J. Fox, as I'm sure you've heard me say before. Yeah, you haven't kept it a secret. No, <laughs> and uh, I just feel like... Um, it's just, and I think I've said this before too, it's just wonderful when a celebrity that, you know, from childhood that you've always admired, you feel like, wow, that person's never done a single thing that's let me down. He's been a bloody awesome person. He's raised, with his foundation, they've apparently raised more than a billion dollars now for Parkinson's oh research. God. Like he's just done huge, huge things. And also the book goes into too how he... He thought at a certain point when he was doing Spin City and his symptoms started becoming yeah. too severe. He I thought, well, Spin City. He thought, my acting career's done. And then he found ways to have characters where he incorporated, um, I don't know if you've seen The Good Wife, um, where he incorp incorporated aspects to do with his illness into characters um, and, you know, got some sort of good comedy out of it as well. And, and uh, yeah, he's just, he's absolutely inspiring, just a superb role model. It would be, um, I mean, there is a weird extra like burn that you would have I mean obviously his fame and his career has given him access to the sort of services and support that lots of people don't have but also yeah. you know having to translate your illness not just to yourself but to every single person that recognizes oh. you is just like a really weird and particular kind of challenge I would oh thought. but also he says you know yes his fame and his wealth and stuff has helped him out a bit but he talks about a certain doctor said to him when when the tumor was on his spine um people didn't really want to operate and a doctor ended up saying to him well because who wants to be the guy who paralyzes michael j fox mm -hmm. so then there's also that because people are fearful that because you're so high profile if something goes wrong then you know is it going to end up biting them so that's kind of a difficult um you know thing to to deal with as well. He talked about how he had this amazing conversation with his father-in-law who died not that long ago um, and he talked about how he felt like what a disappointment that he must have been to his wife in some ways because, you know, they did their wedding, they got married quite young and they had mm. their, you know, sickness and health wedding vows mm. and he said, I feel like Tracy, you know, she didn't really do very well out of that, did she? <laughs> she got all the sickness and the father-in-law said, yeah, but you've done okay in the wealth bit. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, before we go, I yes. will mention another pair of international superstars who have, um, you know, made billions of dollars and um, contributed enormously to a, um, consciousness raising. I'm talking about Mandy and Kate from Two P's uh, podcast. I mean, they're chicks. nearly there. Top chicks. They are such top chicks. And um, I just want to mention that their book, they've written a book because, of course, they don't have enough to do with their time. <laughs> um, it's called The Invisible Life of Us. Um, it is just as everything that they do, it is full of their um, unbelievable brand of optimism, humour, honesty, um, 
particularly about tough situations. Geez, I love those ladies. And I think that they have done such a huge service, not in not just in educating people about um, what it's like for parents to raise kids with special needs, but also just finding and, and um, highlighting and gathering a community of oh, um, totally. people who just – um, get an enormous amount out of each other's company. Anyway, um, The Invisible Life of Us, it's um, uh, out very recently and it is um, a great piece of work. The from- Invisible Life of Us is such a great title for it as well because yeah. it's that sense that I think a lot of people um, ha- feel if they have a child with special needs, which is that there's this sort of world that exists that unless you're in it, you just don't know that it exists. Um, and so, yeah, I've been working on this special for work about um, care, well, it's about women and women's disadvantage, but caring disproportionately falls mm-hmm. on women. And, you know, the, the um, burden that society puts on people to do unpaid caring work of all kinds and it lands disproportionately on women yep. is absolutely huge and it is invisible. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a, a superb title and they're superb chicks. They really are. Yep. Um, all right, I'm getting inundated by work texts uh, about okay. stories and things that we've got to God get on to. So you better, better That's your day off. job, love. All right. Back to my day job. See ya. See ya.